it's like to be a zero, zero. Let me show you what it's like to always feel, feel. Like I'm empty and there's nothing really real, real. I'm looking for a way out. Hello, hello. Let me tell you what it's like to be a zero, zero. Let me show you what it's like to never feel, feel. Like I'm good enough for anything that's real, real. I'm looking for a way out. Hello, hello. Welcome, welcome, welcome to my podcast, podcast. Yeah, probably not the best uh, rendition of that song, but uh, trying to have a little fun here. That was uh, an Imagine Dragons song that was the theme of the movie Ralph Breaks the Internet. And I want to give a special shout out to my niece and nephew, David and Kylie, hoping uh, they're going to enjoy this as they enjoyed the movie and as they're huge fans of Imagine Dragons. Uh, My guest today was um, one of the writers and directors of the film. Uh, he also wrote Zootopia as well as uh, Wreck-It Ralph. And I just had a great conversation with him and really enjoyed it. Originally saw um, actually all three of those movies in the theater with my niece and nephew. And um, we had a blast. Fun rides. Um, Wreck-It Ralph, uh, the, the second one, Ralph Breaks the Internet, just um, they stepped it up. A lot of great gags. Um, a lot of great visual features. It was just a lo- lot of fun. So I, I rewatched that a few weeks before this conversation and uh, enjoyed it as much on Netflix as I did seeing it in the theater with uh, with other audience members. Um, good times. Really enjoy, enjoy animated features and the stories that are being told. And one of the cool things is we get into this conversation, we talk about the deeper themes. And... Um, I am uh, I neglected to ask the question about the song, but uh, one of the things that Phil had told, he, he responded to an email to give me a little of the background information so my nephew would have a more understanding of how they how they choose songs in, in a movie. And uh, Phil had said that he um, about a year before the movie came out, he met the he met with members of the Imagine Dragons and uh, pitched them some ideas and themes of what were going on in the film. And uh, the second film was was very much about Ralph's depression and self-doubt. And uh, they had the song Zero, which um, was a loose song idea at the time and thought would be a good fit. So Phil gave them notes on a couple of lyrics that didn't quite fit the, uh, uh, you know, fit a family film. And, uh, and they had no problem changing a few of those lines. And um, he just said that they were really nice guys and very fun to collaborate with. Um, collaboration is a big thing, especially on uh, animated films. Phil has uh, different creative partners that he works with. Um, talks a little bit about them, as well as numerous animators that he worked with. So just uh, I had a, a great time getting to know him, learning more about his influences his process it's just a fun conversation i know you'll enjoy it special thanks to my sponsor for this episode dr mark holland Um, go to soundcloud check out the notes you can find out information about his chiropractic clinics throughout the st louis area uh, on my website on anywhere when you when you look at the where you listen to your podcast just look at those uh, that description and uh, his information is there um, you can find me on social media, kencalcaterra.com. Sign up for the mailing list. Uh, reach out. Let me know what you think about the show. Always trying to improve it. Um, yeah, just just really enjoy learning about what about these art forms, um, these great artists, uh, great business people, just all rock stars in their field. So I've had a blast bringing this to you. 
Thank you for listening. And here he is, Mr. Phil Johnston. Good morning, Phil. Thanks for uh, taking out some time to chat and talk about your career and the great movies that you've created. Happy to. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'd be remiss if I didn't um, send a shout out to our mutual friend, uh, Scott Sapelsa. Um, he connected us. And I'm grateful for, for him doing that. One of the all-time great guys. Incredibly talented photojournalist, too. Absolutely. Him. Known him over 20 years. Amazing. He's the best. Yeah, no doubt about that. Um, so over the years, I've uh, I've enjoyed your movies. Uh, mostly I Thanks. watched them with my uh, niece and nephew. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Just a good time. But uh, one of the cool things about, about the films, they're just so clever and smart that they... Um, they serve both audiences, kids and, and adults alike. Uh, what is uh, I mean, what is the challenge in, in crafting a movie like that to, to serve you know both audiences? What is the balance there? I mean, I think that's you, you put your finger on sort of the key and the, the hardest part of it, where um, I, I think family films often underestimate the intelligence of kids the emotional intelligence and, and their ability to kind of, um, you know, understand and process deeper, deeper subjects. Obviously you're not going to use four letter words or <laughs> talk about sex or anything no. like that in a family film. But, you know, in, in, in the most recent Wreck-It Ralph movie, it's obviously a guy dealing with self doubt and depression and codependence and Zootopia dealt with bias and, I think for me, the key is that we're not ever going to, you know, solve these problems. But if it can make a kid look at it and go, oh, I've felt that way. Maybe I'm not alone. Or like in the case of Zootopia, maybe maybe a kid goes and asks his parents at the end of the movie, is, does that kind of thing happen in the world? What What can we do about it? How do we make the world a better place? How do we... Um, you know, when, when we make a mistake, like Judy, the little bunny, what do we, what do we, how do we make that better with our friend? If we've, if we've exhibited bias or racism, how do we fix that? How do we own it? You know? So I think to do that back to your question is super tricky because you don't want it to feel preachy. You don't want it to feel like so reductive that it's like a Saturday morning cartoon and you don't want it to fly so high over the kids' heads that it's that it feels, um, uh, I guess, unattainable or un, unrelatable. Um, so yeah, it's it's kind of a back and forth balance of typically I go too far over the line and then I'm pulled back. I'd rather, when approaching the material before it's seen by anyone, kind of go over the line and then have colleagues say, yeah that's a bit harsh. How about we pull that back? You mm -hmm. know? Yeah. And that's, uh, I guess it's one of the great things about having such great collaborators, um, mm -hmm. getting that, yeah. that objective feedback, seeing how things work, playing through it. It's yeah. A, it's yeah. a blessing. I, I mean, animated, <clears throat> excuse me, animated films in particular, um, have this process at, at Disney and Pixar anyway, where, you make the film kind of before anyone in the real world sees it, you make it seven, eight, nine times, meaning you you do just rough storyboard sketches and, 
you know, I might do the voice of Ralph before John C. Riley comes in and does it, just to see what it, it looks like. And you cut that together and do temporary music and all that stuff. And then you can show it to your colleagues. And it feels sort of like a movie, enough so that you can get a sense of, oh, this is not really working. This emotional story is, is, is failing. This joke isn't working and whatever like that. So over a period of years that it takes to make an animated film, you can you can really test it out with with your with your colleagues, which is invaluable. Yeah, it's a fantastic process, and I, I think that's probably one of the reasons that animated movies are as good as they are, especially on the level of a Disney or a DreamWorks. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I have a, a good buddy of mine. He's he's worked at both companies as well as uh, Marlon West. Um, uh-huh. Marlon's yeah. Marlon's amazing. I know his. I'm closer with his brother Tony, but I've had the pleasure of talking with Marlon and. Just a just a great guy. Um, yeah, Marlon is he's a giant. He's uh, one of the great effects effects guys. Which you know the weird thing about animation, if you think about it, it's one hundred percent effects. There's not one practical <laughs> shot in animation. So uh, the job Marlon and and the the people in that department. I haven't worked directly with him. He's done both the Frozen movies, he he he, uh, he didn't do either of the Ralph movies, or Zootopia, I don't think. I didn't direct Zootopia, but um, um, I worked, you know, he's he's always on the on the committee of folks that watch the movies and give really smart feedback. Oh, that's fantastic. So yeah. looking, uh, you know, pretending to feedback, so, so last night I spoke with my nephew and a friend of his and my niece and, uh, you know, trying to, trying to get some points, and I said, I'm, I'm talking, uh-huh. to, talking to one of the writers of, of a couple of the movies we've watched and uh, the director of Ralph Breaks the Internet, and they're like, whoa. Uh, uh-huh. so, so they were really jazzed. And uh, my nephew's friend Kyle had mentioned, uh, you know, he loved that you had the two factions of Predators and Prey and Zootopia. Mm-hmm. And yeah. And of course, everybody loves the loves a sloth, but yeah. um, you guys definitely nailed the the personality traits of the of the animals. It was just really well written. Um, is that another situation where you're going through the committee? You're talking about what these traits should be. How, how did all that come about? Um, so Zootopia was an interesting one in that. Um, I came in on that movie kind of late in the process, about a year or so before it came out, maybe a little less even. And the issue they were having was that it was feeling like it wasn't like the the movie was wanting to be about bias and racism. And a lot of research had been done on animal behavior and, you know, how, how does a fox behave? How does a, a rabbit behave? What are traits sort of uh, inherent within those animals? But ultimately, what I thought about was more human behavior, because even though they are animals, it had to function as allegory for our world. And so without, you know, human human wants and needs and things that errors that humans make, especially again, with regard to Judy Hopps, um, whose, whose whole thing was, you know, she wanted to go make the world a better place and she never in a million years would have looked at herself and said, Oh, I, I have bias. And so she had this sort of blind spot of, of bias that 
I don't know that you could say an animal would necessarily have other than it's, it's a survival instinct. And so to put a human, the subtlety of human behavior into it, it was more looking at, well, how, what is unconscious bias and how does that play out in human relationships? Um, you know, so that weirdly, that is more how I approached it was, okay, we have these cool animals and we have animal behavior, but for people to relate to it, there has to be people behavior in it, you know? Absolutely, and I think you you guys accomplished that well with um, Judy's character, just her first day on the job, and how yeah. how she was so eager to do do such a great job and be the best officer, and uh, and then combining that with, with her being a bunny and just bouncing around. I just thought that That's was right. that yeah. was fantastic. Yeah, and and she was she was discriminated against, you know, by the by the larger animals who said, "Oh, she she's incapable. She can't do it." So you have you have gender politics. You have, um, you know, uh, in this case, a, a species that they didn't think was capable. So, you know, I, women run up against that all the time in in any number in certainly in the police force, but but in so many jobs where men are just assuming um, that a woman can't do the job. So, yeah, we, we bit off a, a pretty <laughs> took a pretty big <laughs> bite with that movie. A lot of, a lot of issues. <laughs> Definitely. But, yeah, it, it came out well, and it was, uh, I've seen it a few times, and it, it holds up really oh, well. Oh, good, yeah. yeah I haven't seen it in a few years. Good to hear. <laughs> yeah, how does that feel when you're, you're watching your own work? I mean, is it something, I mean, some artists say, you know, okay, it's done, I don't want to watch it. Um, how do you go about that? Kind of that. Um, I think, again, when when it's an animated movie, you're watching it dozens, hundreds of times, and there are so many iterations of it that by the end you're you're pretty sick of it. I mean, mm-hmm. with each with each layer that's added, it's it becomes exciting again once it gets finished. You know, when the the uh, lighting is when the animation is obviously done and complete it looks amazing and then the lighting comes in and that looks amazing and then the final score and the sound effects so it 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 gets additive each time but then by the end i i'm just sort of exhausted Mm -hmm. so yeah i haven't watched any of those three either of the ralph movies or Zootopia. Mm -hmm. i don't think in well, Ralph, Ralph Two is. It's been a couple of years since it's yeah. out, so I don't know. I probably watched that one. I don't know, maybe two years ago yeah. or something. Um, or not even. So <laughs> yeah, it. I, I. It's not that I don't like the movies. I'm just sort of tired of them by the end because I've seen them so many times. Oh, absolutely. Uh, on a smaller scale, some of the projects I work on. Same way when I'm editing, I'm, I'm putting all this time in. But it's it's really interesting and, and a good feeling coming back to something after three or four years and just yeah. uh, it's it's a bit of a surreal experience. I just I almost forget like how did that come about? How did this turn out this way? I kind of forget about some of the steps and at that point it's just enjoying the the art or the story. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah, so. where you can you can watch your work almost as a fan or the way a regular audience member would, not with remembering how how long it took to decide on a cut or something yeah so it's it's, it's kind of like a little bit of a time warp so that's kind of nice um, yeah yeah that's cool yeah you've written uh for both animation as well as live action um mm-hmm. what are the differences in, in those processes um i mean 
on the page, there is no difference. It's uh, an animated script looks just the same as a as a live action script. Um, you know, you might you might have. Uh, there's obviously more leeway in terms of uh, you know flights of fancy you can take that are easier to do in animation than would be in live action, where where it might break the budget. But um, I think the biggest difference is the the collaborative process in animation and the uh, the iterative process, if you will, where which is what I was describing, where you do it over and over and mm-hmm. over again, and so. You know, there might be the first draft of the film is the one you storyboard and you put up, and that's your first screening. And maybe it goes well, maybe it doesn't. And you might just throw out the entire script and start over. Um, whereas in in a, that doesn't typically happen, but it certainly has. Um, whereas in live action, you know, my experience has mostly been of the movies that got made. Um, well, actually, that's only happened once with Cedar Rapids, where the the script I wrote was pretty much the the movie that got shot and made. Um, another one I did with Sasha Baron Cohen um, was was more like animation because he's someone that uh, iterates over and over and over again. So, um, you know, testing jokes and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I guess for me the. Uh, in a live action script, the uh, I've I've had well, I, I guess I don't know I've had better luck I would say at least with Cedar Rapids in that what I wrote became the movie, um, you know with early drafts. But animation it's more like it's almost more like running a TV show where you have a a series of of writers in the form of storyboard artists who you're collaborating with, and the the storyboard artists might come in and go. Oh, this scene has is written this way, but what if we what if this character could fly or you know, mm-hmm. what if there's a helicopter here or whatever. So it's it's sort of the back and forth where the the writing is inspiring the art and then mm-hmm. the art is giving back to the writing and then you go back and forth kind of like that. Oh, that's that's incredible. And there's just so many great artists that are working in animation. Um Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah truly. Always enjoy talking to my friend Steve Meyer. I just enjoy his stories and just talking about some of the directors he's worked with and things like that. Um, so, yeah, that's always always interesting to me. It's it's a it's a great art form. Um, yeah, totally. Did you uh, was that a dream of yours to work in in animated films or what was uh, how Weirdly, did this come about? No, <laughs> it really wasn't. Um, I mean, I I love animation. But I don't I don't love animation just because it's an you know like I don't love all animation mm-hmm. for instance so to me um, and this is something lots of people have said I think Brad Bird says it all the time which is it's not a genre it's a medium mm-hmm. so I I wouldn't just look at an animated film necessarily and love it because it's animated you know if it's a story I like and and um, characters that I, I like, uh, and there's innovation somehow, then I'm more likely to enjoy it as opposed to just looking at a beautiful film that is simply beautiful, but not a, not a story I relate to. So, you know, I had a, an abiding, uh, love of certain animated work and, and certainly a great admiration for the artistry, but coming out of film school, which I went to 
I was a, a journalist for 10 years, nine years. That's how I knew Scott Sapelsa. I worked in Rochester, Minnesota, Omaha, Des Moines, and, and then Minneapolis, is, which is where Scott and I met. And then when I was almost 30, decided to go to film school, um, which is, is a whole other story. But um, uh, going to film school, I coming out of there at Columbia in New York, I desperately wanted to make independent film, like smaller mm -hmm. independent yeah. film, which along the scale of maybe Cedar Rapids or something like that. And the animation thing I kind of stumbled into in a weird way where I had written this this R-rated comedy that never got made, um, but it, that was my sample script. And someone at Disney read it, and it was about... It was about a kid that sells porn when he's in seventh grade. <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, which is the last thing you would think someone at Disney would go, oh, yeah, teenage porn dealer. That's, that's, a, great, that's a great Disney film. However, they, they liked uh, um, the characters and the comedy and sort of there was an earnestness, even though it was an R-rated thing, the earnestness of the characters and the, uh, I guess, truth of the mm -hmm. character, yeah. if you will. And from that, we're like, well, maybe you would actually be a fit with, with this guy, Rich Moore, who had been a Simpsons director and has sort of a left-of-center sensibility as well. And Rich and I met and really hit it off and, you know, had a lot of the same reference points in terms of the the work we loved, both animated and, and live action, and just comedians and stuff like that. And so, and I was a huge fan of so much of the stuff he had done at The Simpsons, and then he did Futurama as well. So I was, I was a big fan of the animation he had done. And, um, you know, we sort of then started working together and cooked up the idea for Wreck-It Ralph. Oh, fantastic. So, weird way of getting into yeah. Disney, you know, in that I wasn't a super fan. I was, you know, again, admired, especially a lot of the early films, but um, I wasn't like a huge, you know, I was in my early 20s in the in the kind of the second golden age when when the musicals in the in the 90s came came out. So I wasn't rushing to see those. Um, I mean, I'd seen them, but they weren't my favorite films by any means. And so you know, we were kind of coming at 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 the Disney thing from a from an outsider approach in a weird way. Interesting. Yeah, that's one of the things my my buddy Steve had told me when I I inquired if when he was at Disney if he worked with you, and uh, he hadn't, but he had mentioned yeah. like the early I guess the early incarnation of Wreck It Ralph was a little different than what you know we eventually saw. Um, was that a little edgier? Was it a little darker? Could could you talk a little bit about that? Um, well, I mean, because there was there was a version, there was a video game movie that was attempted before Rich and I got there, which he may have been talking about. Okay. I don't know. I never, it never, it never saw the light of day. So I don't know if that might be what he's talking about, because. Um, yeah, that was maybe a year or two before we got okay. there. There was there was an attempt to make of some sort of video game movie, but I don't know. Again, I we sort of in, we knew it existed, but uh, did not want to see it. Just we didn't want it to influence our work. So understandable, cause, yeah. Because our early early, I mean, the very first draft of the script um, 
the Jack McBrayer character, Fixed Felix, was going to be the the protagonist of the film. And we kept running into this thing where this guy, you know, what what does he really want? And what's the obstacle? And we kept coming up with, well, the the bad guy of the of the game, the sort of this Ralph character, sort of a Donkey Kong like villain in the game, is actually a much more interesting character because he's so broken. Mm-hmm. And he's he's such a jerk, and everyone hates him. <laughs> and and that 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 would be a much more interesting character. Um, so uh, yeah, we kind of we did shift gears. That was super early on in in the in the process. That was, you know, one of the I don't know first drafts. So it's it's I'm not sure he would have necessarily seen that or not. But um, yeah, we did again. It's that iterative process where you yeah. you just change stuff as you go. And I think that's probably what he's referring to. You know, somehow maybe heard about it or at some point. Yeah, yeah. You know, the lore yeah. that that goes through when you're at a building yeah. like that. Um, but yeah. yeah, no, I, I think that is that's a great choice because it's really interesting to understand how you know somebody that is a villain why they became a villain, and yeah, I, I think totally. that's what makes that movie so interesting because then we understand and and you know the second movie went deeper into it so you know mm-hmm. it wasn't yeah. like it was oh this is this is Wreck It Ralph again it was just I mean you guys took the story to a completely new level in both yeah. The world that you created, as well as just the character. So, bravo to that. Yeah. I, I enjoy oh, it. Thanks. Yeah. Um, there's a, I don't know who said it, but something that I always keep in mind when is that the the protagonist is the one who suffers the most. And so, um, that, you know, isn't necessarily how you would think about, um, a film, but if you if you really put obstacles in front of your main characters, then you know the 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 good guy or the 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 lead is the one who has the most in the way and is the one who suffers the most in a weird way. So um, even though you love these characters, you really want to punish them <laughs> if you, if you're going to have a good story. Absolutely, and just cre- yeah. creating a world from something that's ones and zeros. Um, yeah, and, and I'm sure that's part of the crea- collaborative process with with the animators and, and you and Rich, and the rest mm-hmm. of your team. I, I mean, that was just amazing, and that's another thing my nephew and his friend Kyle had talked about uh, was like the pop up ads. Like as they were walking oh, yeah. through this world, there's all these pop up ads, and and uh, they both mentioned my nephew's name is David. He'll get a kick out of hearing his name, but uh, yeah. I'm trying to get that younger audience as well. But, uh, you know, educate these these youngsters. But, um, yeah. you know, he meant they mentioned that they they really love some of the shadiness of the ads, which is just like the Internet. You'll get some ads that um, that work for you and then other ones. It's just stay away. Oh, yeah, that was one of my favorite characters in the sequel. Um, Bill Hader did the voice. This guy named Spamley, J.P. Spamley, who. Again, he's just a degenerate. He's just a, <laughs> you know, sort of a scumbag yeah. con artist, and and thinking of well, what, how do we, you know, again, like in the first film, how do we personify video game characters? And like I was talking about with Zootopia, you have to you have to approach them with with human emotions for for it to really resonate, even though it's eight bit characters. And in the case of the internet, digital 
creations. And so, yeah, what would a what would spam look like other than spam, you know, like yeah. whatever. So what would a, what would a spamming email or a pop-up guy look like and what would he be like and what would his, his persona be in it? You know, not that there's anything wrong with used car dealers, God bless them, but it was, uh, it was sort of that idea that he was this shifty kind mm-hmm. of dirt bag that lived in a, a weird dark place in the internet and and yeah some of the stuff he was doing wasn't completely legal or above board and um i love characters like Mm -hmm. that even in my real life i love weirdos so um not that i want to spend all my time with them (laughs) but it's there they make good characters for sure absolutely and then he had that you know the redemption towards the end where he tries to save ralph and of course the physics of everything ralph just bursts right through his car and but, uh, oh yeah, yeah that 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 gag never. I, I just <laughs> I love that gag. I, I can't remember if that that's a good example of of uh, you know the the storyboarding process. And I can't remember honestly where that that particular idea came from. But you know we had this thing. Well, maybe Spamley's going to save him, and then now oh, wouldn't it be? Wouldn't it be better if Stanley tries to save him and then just fails miserably? That <laughs> that feels more like Stanley. Yeah. So it might have been it might have been Jim Reardon who is another it was another legend of of The Simpsons, uh, just a great director, and he's our head of story, which is the 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 person who oversees the storyboard artists, mm-hmm. and and he worked on all three movies with us as well, and an incredibly funny guy and so smart. Um, so a lot of the, a lot of the kind of physical comedy gags come out of his brain. Um, I don't remember for certain if that was him, but seems like something Jim would come up with. Right on. And then with Ralph, you pay, you know, pays homage to many elements of pop culture. Um, one yes. one of yeah. the things that I noticed, of course, you have uh, towards the end when when you have the virus monster of Ralph. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you get a little King Kong in there, and uh, mm-hmm. I kind of saw. You know, to me, it just it touched upon the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. So that. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, King Kong obviously is is um, is referenced there in in just the the climbing of the building and the you know the Vanellope sort of as a tiny Fay Ray type character. Mm-hmm. Um, you, yeah, we. We watch so many movies to reference that, um, you know, there are Godzilla elements, all, all of those kind of early monster movies that um, we all grew up watching. Um, Stay Puff, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think, I suspect Stay Puff also uh, has reference references back to King Kong also, you know, so it's oh, all, yeah. we're yeah. all, we're all uh, fishing in the same pond. <laughs> right on. Uh, what are what are some of the you know your influences growing up? What would you watch? What do you love? Um, when I was a kid, my so my dad was a an Episcopal priest, and one of his parishioners had uh, was a, a I don't know a, an executive at the Marcus Theater chain in Wisconsin where I grew up, and so we had a free pass to go to the movies. So I went to the movies basically every week growing up the Nina theater in Nina, Wisconsin, which is now torn down. But, um, so I was kind of 
a little agnostic in my movies. I would whatever happened to be playing there, I would go see. So I remember, for instance, absolutely loving on Golden Pond when I was a little kid. For some reason, yeah, <laughs> like yeah, the 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 Henry Fonda, Jane Fonda movie mm-hmm. that there was just something emotional about it that uh, I was like eight years old, and I I just remember feeling emotion for the first time in a movie that I didn't fully understand. Um, and really like it really resonated with mm-hmm. me somehow. Um, of course, star Wars and all of those movies. I, I was uh, a huge fan of the original star Trek series. Like I watched that religiously when I was a kid. Um, you know, as I got a little older, I started getting really into comedy. And so we would, when I was too young would watch, Caddyshack and Stripes <laughs> yeah. and those kind of cornball 80s yeah, yeah. comedies that that are are funny in my memory and don't necessarily hold up if you watch them <laughs> Agreed. again. Yeah. Uh, or maybe not at all. Yeah. Um, but those were things like Strange Brew, the Bob and Doug oh, McKenzie movie. That was one of my favorites growing up, yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> I must have watched that 50 times. Yeah, me I too. mean... To where that was my friends and I would just, yeah, I think if we're of a certain age, you know, watching those on VHS and just watching them over and over mm-hmm. again. Yeah. Caddyshack, Stripe, Strange Brew, um, you know, as it, as it, um, you know, as I got older, then got into Coen Brothers and like that. So, yeah, just a sort of wide range of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I remember growing up, my grandmother would always, uh, during the summertime, take my cousin would come visit. He was out of state. from He was in Wyoming. So he'd come visit. Mm-hmm. And that was my grandmother would take us to a, a slew of movies. My dad and uh, my grandma would always pack this big purse and she'd pop her own popcorn and all that, <laughs> which is, <laughs> nice. you know, not good That's if you're, you're the theater chain, but, you know, stretch that dollar. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, but uh, it was, those were just incredible times. It was just so magical. The movies were just so magical. Yeah, and, and you know, now, I mean, it's very weird not being able to go to the movies yeah. for me, but um, the kind of cool thing about there's nothing cool about the pandemic let's be clear but the thing that has been um uh sort of nice has been i've been able to watch a ton more movies with my kids so showing them et and you know back to the future and big sort of a lot of those the the family films of that era um, it kind of goes back to your original question, like how do you balance uh, stuff kids would like versus what adults would like? And if you watch E.T. now, that is, I mean, it's 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 dealing with some very adult themes. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's profanity a little bit. There's a divorce. There's infidelity where the wife is, or I mean, the husband is off in Mexico with his secretary or something like that. They're heavy duty themes yeah. that. No one, no one at that time, and granted, we also didn't wear seatbelts in the back of the car and people were smoking, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no one was uh, questioning the, the idea that kids could, could handle that kind of thing. Um, I, you know, obviously we change and evolve, but, but those movies, that one anyway, certainly holds up. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and, and that's one of the things Spielberg wanted to accomplish with that, being, you know, a child of divorce, 
I right. mean, that was that was a big theme for him, and and it came oh, yeah. across well. And having that friend being separated, I, I mean, I we saw that in the theater, I think three or four times. I remember bawling oh, yeah. every time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> same, same. Yeah. yeah, I haven't seen it in a while, and I'm sure that uh, yeah, it'll it'll open up the floodgates again. So I need to. It does. I need to revisit. It holds up. It holds up, and and you know, the it's, in, it's fun watching films that are you know, 20, 30, 40 years old or older, the, where the pacing is much more sort of languid and it, it's not as in your face as, you know, the explosions and stuff. My son is eight and he particularly loves, he said, I wish all movies were in black and white. And I think he likes just that, you know, the that it's not so fast paced mm-hmm. and it's it's like the original, the original, back to the original King Kong is one of his favorite films because it's great and it's, you know, there's a sort of DIY element to it where you can kind of see how the effects work. And I think, I think that's fun for a kid to think, Oh, I, I could, I can imagine, you know, using a puppet or whatever mm-hmm. to, to make a movie that way. It's, it, it gives them, gives him anyway, great joy seeing films like that. Yeah, so those uh, Ray Harryhausen films. I mean, Jason yeah, and the Argonauts. Yeah. Uh, seeing those growing up, those were just incredible. It was amazing. Yeah. What, what a great experience oh watching those. I know, I know that he was he was just legendary, and and those films. I we've watched a couple of them, and um, with my kids, and again, it's just it's sort of they kind of laugh because it's campy, and they can tell that it's effects. But at the but explaining like no, that was. Back then, just imagine that was that was cutting edge. That was um, unprecedented, you know. Um, so yeah, it's it's a it's a it's boy, it's a great privilege to be working in this medium. Absolutely, and just in looking back, I mean, with YouTube, everything's little snippets. So so just it's refreshing to hear you say that your your son is is into something that's long form that's a little slower pace that you can it gives you a chance to breathe to really reflect and uh i was i showed my nephew uh, mash this um mm. this summer and cool. uh, it was one of the movies you know we watch he just loves you know he wants to stay up all night watching movies which uh-huh. which i did that when i was a kid so that's cool and how old uh, is he he is a uh, 14 now Okay. Um, so, yeah. So the fact that he really dug Mash and could sit there and you know just soak it in was yeah that was cool. So I, I felt yeah. you know that was a proud uncle moment there. That's awesome. Yeah, um, I'm wondering that's probably a little a little mature for my eight year old, but I'll, uh, maybe I'll ease him into Altman with Popeye or something. Yeah, most definitely. Oh, I hated Popeye when I was a kid. I I don't I haven't rewatched it, but. I I did not like it for some reason. I wonder how that holds up. You know, I I have it on DVD, but I haven't watched it in years. And I think I was kind of indifferent as a kid. But then when I went to film school, just learning more about Altman, it was just yeah. uh, one I picked up. And it's been probably twenty <laughs> years since I watched it, so I'll have to I'll watch that with my nephew as well. See what he thinks, and and yeah, I'll, I'll have to let yeah. you know let you know how it holds up. Yeah, um, you'll you'll be the canary. Yeah, in the th- there, there you go. Um, also, the the um, Capra films. I, I like it happened mm-hmm. one night and arsenic and arsenic and old lace. Just a snappy yeah. dialogue of those. I'm gonna have oh, to yeah. revisit those and as I, well. And Capra, I think, is great because there's again, there's like this 
this sweetness and optimism to him but but look at look at it's a wonderful life it opens with a friggin' suicide attempt you know like that's and everyone thinks oh capra's all sunshine and rainbows (laughs) but like you know that would never happen in a studio film today where i don't think it would anyway where you know this this uh this very dark stuff is going on and the world is dark, and I think mm-hmm. I think if we, I mean, some of the movies, the point of it is it should be escapism, but it's also like there's probably a way to incorporate the darkness and the light in the world and, and give people hope amid the dark as opposed to just mm-hmm. um, being pure escapist, you know, direct, well, which so, is, yeah. I think, a lot of what, you know, mm-hmm. not to sound like a curmudgeon, but I think that's what a lot of movies are today. Yeah, what's well, the the yin yang? You know, how, can you have good without evil? It's just uh, you know that whole philosophy. So it's just, yeah, again yeah. we're back to finding that balance. Yeah, um, totally. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So you um you uh, received the honor of an Academy Award nomination for Ralph Breaks the Internet. Um, so that and that yeah. was your debut as a director, correct? Yeah, yeah, of uh, features for yep, sure was. Yeah, so how how was that sharing that honor with with Rich Moore and Clark Spencer? I mean, is it true? You know, everybody says it's just a, it's an honor to be nominated, which I mean that's huge. But but how do you feel about that and, and that statement that you always hear? Or, or was that one of those things like oh we were we were so close? No, no. I mean, in that case, it was. I would say that is absolutely accurate. That um, we knew pretty clearly that um the spider-verse movie was was going to win because it was it was um sort of uh, just critically beloved and our, our movie did well but that one you could kind of tell had just captured the the um imagination in a way that um yeah that that it just didn't seem like we we were really in the running um that year so we were able to go this is great this is really fun we're super proud of this movie and now we can just go and enjoy the night with no pressure because um you know we not uh, not to be a debbie downer but there was no chance really we were going to win um so so yeah, in, in that regard, it was just a blast, and That's and cool. just knowing, all right, that will always be um, still a movie I love, and it doesn't matter if it wins that award or any award mm-hmm. or not. But um, you know, that's that that little certificate of nomination yeah, is yeah. still pretty cool. So absolutely, um, yeah. And, and then um, I was there when you know I went the ceremony when Zootopia won so even though I wasn't on the stage that was that was weird, more nerve-wracking in mm-hmm. a, in a way because I knew it had a chance and I thought it might win but I wasn't sure so I was more nervous for Zootopia because you know there was again there was uh-huh. just no chance Ralph 2 was going to win Interesting, but that level of awareness is great. Where you could just uh, enjoy that night and and the team, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. experiencing yeah. that with the people you did, I, I think that is is probably one of the one of the greatest joys. At least what I've had when I've shared, you know, some accolades with others and those yeah. creative partners. That, that that to me that that just means the most. 
Without question, yeah. I mean, it was, it's, it's, as you know, it's a very long process, and it's, it's fraught at times, and it's um, uh, difficult. And so, yeah, to get to the, to get to the end, and and be there hanging out with your buddies in 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 that auditorium, and you know, seeing all the actors and famous people that you admire. It's it's surreal, but also just, yeah, this, this feels good. This is great. I'm glad we're here. <laughs> Very cool. And then working with, uh, working with Rich, uh, you coming into animation and Disney for the first time and having him, you know, as, as a mentor, as a guide, um, just mm-hmm. what, what did you learn from him just coming into animation as someone, someone new? Um, well, I mean, he's a, he's a terrific, uh, director of comedy and um, his timing is great and he's maybe the the most uh, we worked really closely together in in editing the film and in editing storyboards and getting those the storyboard reels up and running and just you know finding ways to make a joke work better with with a cut or um, a frame or you know, whatever he's, he's rich and Jim Reardon too, going back to Jim, both are just real students of comedy and not just animation, but, you know, Laurel and Hardy and the Marx brothers mm-hmm. and Chaplin and, and going back to that and, you know, Sullivan's travels and, um, you know, the films of the thirties and forties, Jim Reardon especially just has this almost unhealthy knowledge of, <laughs> of cinema from that era. Wow. Um, and so the reference points are just really interesting. And, um, both of those guys are just a wealth of knowledge and, and of course have tons of experience too. But, um, yeah, I'd say, I'd say just the, you know, the, the cutting of comedy is, is was a big thing. Um, you know, Rich and I were coming into into it sort of together, though, in that he hadn't he hadn't done a feature animated. He had worked on the Simpsons okay. movie, but hadn't directed yeah. a, a feature film. So we were in that those early months of of Ralph were both sort of flailing around, goofing off, to kind of finding our way together in terms of what the story was going to be and and like that. Um, but yeah, he's he's. He's been a, a great, um, you know, uh, a great partner through the years. Well, that's fantastic. And one of, one of the cool things, we talked about Disney being a well-oiled machine and you have the different departments. Um, talk about just what a, what a day is when, when you're in it. I know you have um, production managers and producers that are handling the schedule and keeping things flowing. Talk about just... I mean, some of those days are chaotic. You're going from meeting to meeting, story meeting, animation, talking with ma- uh, animators. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, just touch upon that, if you would. Yeah, so, I mean, when the movie is really, really at its peak, there are as many as 500 people working on it. So there, you know, I'll just jump to tor- sort of the last, say, three or four months of the process in which in which case, yeah, there are nonstop meetings starting with, you know, if uh, maybe maybe spend an hour with the editor in the morning where you're 
um, some new storyboards have come in and you're recutting a scene and maybe within the editorial uh, booth you're like, wow, that doesn't really work. Let's let's change this and, and redo that. And then one of the storyboard artists is just sitting there on this device called a Cintiq, which is, you know, it's essentially just a digital sketch pad, which, um, you know, they can redraw the boards and then email them kind of to the editor and then the editor will cut in the new boards, but there might need to be a different piece of dialogue. So I get behind the mic and do Ralph's voice and, <laughs> okay, we're going over here now and come on, kid, don't do that. That's ridiculous. And, you know, whatever. Wow. And, um, and then that gets, then the editor cuts that in and we look at that with the new boards. All right, that's good. And then maybe we would then go to animation dailies, which it's just like watching dailies of a of a live action film where the um the animators are showing their work and it might be you know just a handful of shots from a scene and you're looking at the work and going okay in this case you know he 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 looks too angry rather than have Ralph scowl there why don't you have him grimace or you're making adjustments just the mm-hmm. way you would with with an actor um you know trying to I was taught in film school talking action verbs, you know. Yep, so, yep. Um, but in some cases, might get up and and act out how you want it to look, or you know, oh, what if he tried this, and you get up and sort of bumble around or whatever. So um, from there, you might go to uh, I don't know the layout, which is which is from storyboarding, it goes to layout, which is the process of it looks like animation, but it doesn't have the acting. It doesn't have the, you know, the. it's more robotic in the movement. It's basically blocking. And so the characters are moving around in a digital space and you're moving the camera how you want it to move. So working with cinematographer um, in, in the layout department, so that might be a couple hours or an hour, and then you might go to technical animation which is how the hair and the cloth Mm -hmm. moves and you know stuff like that and then maybe it's effects and that big king kong ralph thing at the end of the film there were so many effects because there were over a million ralphs individual Mm -hmm. ralphs in that giant thing and if you look at it there are these when he gets angry it gets really red and there are Mm -hmm. these little arcs of lightning within there that's all effects yeah yeah you know there's debris that gets you know, when a building is smashed, there's debris and there's fire and all kinds of stuff. So, you know, every every detail someone is responsible for. And so when the movie is in full production, it's just it's just nonstop. Mm-hmm. And it's it takes this massive team to to get it done. So, yeah, it's it's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. And then how how do you balance out those those crazy times? How do you balance out family life with um with with your work? I mean, I know at times when you're in the last 3 months, I'm sure you're not seeing your family much, but but where yeah. where is that balance? Not I mean, yeah, it's it those the years of making that movie, it was it was pretty tough. Um I have two little kids and and um you know, I wasn't around a lot and we're having meals often at 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 work where the meals are catered which is mm-hmm. great um but you know my family my wife Jill and my two kids 
would would sometimes come over to Disney and eat there with me or you know come for lunch or whatever but um yeah there were a lot of a lot of weekends worked and a lot of long long hours and a lot of missed vacations and all that it's just that's sort of unfortunately the nature of it so um a lot of sacrifices made on you know and my wife kind of shouldering a lot of that mm-hmm that's what uh, a friend of mine had made the statement. Uh, that's why it's important to marry well. Yeah, so exactly, exactly. Balance that part the, of life out. Yeah, and the old Disney the joke was, if you don't want to work on Saturday, don't even bother coming in Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one more I want to touch on, one more thing in Wreck-It Ralph, and then I have a couple other questions. Are you doing okay on time? Yeah. Yep. I'm. I'm fine. The um, phone keeps buzzing with uh, political donors or people asking. Yeah. I'm sure asking for political donations. But yeah, I'm good. Yeah, I turn mine off to avoid those distractions because I'm getting a lot of that. It's you donate yeah. once um, and and volunteer a little bit. Yeah, then you're you're on the list. But uh, oh yeah. yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, that's cool. But. Uh, but yeah, John C. Riley was just as as the voice of Ralph was just incredible. I mean, it's, he just really um, that that voice just really embodied that character. Oh was, yeah. Did did, uh, did you guys envision him when you were when you were crafting the the screenplay and the story, or did he come along later? Um, we had the idea for John pretty early, like before he had committed to it. In fact, um, John was also in. Uh, Cedar Rapids, another movie I wrote, and I was on the set of Cedar Rapids and asked him if he would consider doing the voice of Ralph because we were thinking about him for it. And he was actually very difficult to get him to commit to doing it. He, there was some, something where he, he had always heard from, like he's friends with Jack Black and had heard from Jack Black that it's basically for animation you're just in a dark room you know by yourself uh you know not acting against anyone and not you know that it's it's basically just just you alone he's like why would i do that i'm an actor because i like to react Mm -hmm. i like to bounce off of people and so we met with him a, a number i met with him and rich one time or a couple times, and then Rich met with him individually a couple times and basically convinced him it doesn't have to be that way. We can get you together with Sarah Silverman in the same room, and it'll be, yeah, you'll be behind a mic, but the chemistry will be real, and as much as possible, we'll we'll record that way. And so that became the new norm for for the movie, where um, almost every scene that they were in they would record together and Jack McBrayer and Jane Lynch would record together and it just it's better you know mm-hmm. it's it's simply a better way of working um and so i think john once he once he committed he really committed and and he he knew ralph inside and out and um really embodied that character and i i can't imagine anyone else doing that voice i really can't and so yeah, we got we got lucky in that he finally he finally gave in and 
and, and oh that's fantastic yeah yeah and you nailed the impression when you were we were doing that earlier that was fantastic it, yeah i i i <laughs> when i first met john um again it was on cedar rapids and it's like i like you we're both jagoffs <laughs> that's i go oh, cool i guess <laughs> you know he's a chicago guy and yeah. i'm from uh, wisconsin yeah. so we apparently share a jag offery that uh, <laughs> is our secret language. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic! And then, yeah. uh, so Cedar Rapids in uh, in 2011 that was um, that was your first big budget opportunity. How did that manifest? Um, that so that the it was sort of born out of frustration with uh, a, a number of films that I had sold and written a couple of. A movies and TV show that um, sold but never got made, which you know is something that happens a lot um, in in Hollywood. Is you know you might sell a script or or a pitch or whatever, and then it just goes into this development hole and it never gets made. So I was really frustrated. I'm like, why the hell am yeah, I yeah. just keep doing this crap? And why don't I just write something that I want to write and then see if I can get a maiden. So I just wrote it kind of with, with Ed Helms in mind. He was a, a, a friend. Um, we had met through a mutual friend and I wrote it with Ed in mind and, um, you know, finished the script and sent it to him and he loved it. And um, it just happened to coincide with the hangover. I don't think it had come out quite yet, but the hangover, you know, went on to become this massive mm-hmm. phenomenon for, the time that it was when it was out and so ed was a bankable movie star as a result of that and um uh we were able to put that movie together pretty quickly with with um just the stars aligned in a way that rarely happens um but but yeah that's 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 how it came about yeah i hadn't seen that in a while i enjoyed it and uh, that's another one I have to revisit. Uh, there's just there's so much, so many great stories out there, and it's hard to hard yeah. to find the time to enjoy them all. Oh my and god! Work yeah. And everything yeah. else. So, but uh, yeah, yeah, we have so many streaming services and the Criterion Channel and HBO Max yeah. and da 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 da. I could watch movies for the rest of my life <laughs> and never see a, a a fraction, only see a fraction of what exists. Yeah, yeah. So on uh, on Cedar Rapids, uh, Alexander Payne was a producer, and mm-hmm. uh, you yep. you learned from him the power of saying no, and and I don't know if we'd say that's the subtle art of saying no, or you know I'm stealing that from a book that I've enjoyed. That's uh, the the subtle art of not giving a an F, trying not yeah. to curse. So we get the uh, you know get the, keep the family theme here, but uh-huh, um, uh-huh. yeah, talk about. Um, yeah, that power of saying no and, I guess, staying true to something that you believe in. Yeah, it's, it's um, I mean, I think it's served me well in terms of uh, the, the projects I've done for the most part. Um, it's really just that, that exactly what you just said. It's staying true to what 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 you believe in, the kinds of films or shows you would want to watch and and kind of trusting your your instincts about something that feels crummy something that is either going to be 
lead to a bad movie or or a terrible experience. And so the more, you know, I, I would, yeah, I, I, I look at a lot of writers and directors who have 20 things in development and and I wonder, well, do you really care about all of those? It's not, it's not possible. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, I, I really try to care deeply about what I do and it, it leads to me being, I'm sure less prolific than I might otherwise be. But I, I invest myself thoroughly in whatever I'm working on to the point where it becomes almost an obsession. And, um, that may, that may inform it as much as anything, why I say no to things, because I'm not capable of multitasking mm-hmm. to that, the degree some people are. But I do think wh- what's the point? It's, it's really hard. Like doing this work is, is, um, I mean, it's not saving lives or anything, but it's, it's, it's hard work and people are nasty and unpleasant often and are, are telling you you suck and so you <laughs> damn well better be invested in yeah. in the idea because it's going to be a long, ugly, bumpy road to get to the end. And um, if it's something you only half care about, then what is the point, you mm-hmm. know? So, yeah. Yeah, no there, doubt. It's... it's I I I I think it's a I think it's a good word. No, yeah, it can be. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, and yeah. and I I find as I get older, it's easier to say no. Uh, it's easier to set boundaries, um, things like that. And I realize my time is limited. So what do I what do I want to spend it on? So exactly, yeah. totally. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, That's not great. like in this pandemic, I've. Uh, I've spent it, you know, the most wisely, you know, I probably could have done some different things, but, uh, you know, I've, there's that balance again. So hopefully, yeah. hopefully I yeah. lived in the balance, um, talking about, so, so your early career, you, you almost had a decade in broadcast journalism and, and we won't mm-hmm. get too deep into that, but I had read that, um, that was, I mean, and, and just the news this is so negative these days. And, and mm-hmm. I can see how that was something that was very taxing on you. It's a, it's a heavy burden just watching the news and watching current <laughs> politics and everything else. It's, it's wearing yeah. me out. Um, but, but how did that career, you know, help in your writing? Because I find that having those different life experiences can really help you understand the characters better, the psychology, things like that, when you're directing the emotion. How, how yeah, did all that help yeah. you? I, I I think you're right in that meeting all these different people every day, it might be, you know, I can think of stories Scott Sapelson I shot with this one of this 80-year-old lion tamer who had this weird, I mean, pre-Tiger King, obviously, <laughs> in the 90s, yeah. but strange, strange backyard circus and this guy played a musical saw and this guy, the, this 80 year old named Wilbert Bain ate fire <laughs> and he had tigers in his backyard. And I mean, horrible from an ASPCA standpoint, you know, in retrospect, <laughs> yeah. but, yeah. uh, but a fascinating character. Yeah. And it might be that guy one day and then, Oh, there's a, there's a house fire the next day and this family's just lost their home. And, and how awful is that? And it's it's that um, weird thing where you are given, and I again use the word privilege, the privilege of telling people's stories. And that that so you, you're meeting just a vast swath of 
humanity, and that does nothing but inform, you know, at least my relationship with with people or my understanding of people, and like you said, the psychology of people. And well, what the hell did happen to make that guy want to want to make a circus in his backyard? And what made this guy want to <laughs> yeah. kill someone? And what made that guy become a soybean farmer and or a commercial fisherman or whatever? So. Um, I, I really, I'm really grateful for those years that I, that I did that. Um, even though it would be awesome to be 10 years younger and, you know, be at where I'm at in my career now, mm-hmm. but, yeah. you know, I was able to, I think, use that work to inform the work I'm doing now. Um, and I'm also really glad I'm not doing that now because mm-hmm. to your point, it's, it's awful. The news is horrible. And and it would be so hard to, you know, to keep up with the people are constantly clicking to find what's the what's the new story. It's been four minutes. Mm-hmm. There's not a new headline. What am I going to do? Yeah, I don't know how jur- I don't know how journalists are functioning right now. I really don't. And boy, I'm glad I'm not doing it. Yeah, yeah. The the whys of everything are fascinating, but now just the the culture of, you know, I want to scoop everyone. And so mm-hmm. it's just it's a culture of headlines where you don't really have the substance, and yeah. uh, that, that's why I enjoy the long form journalism where I can learn more. I can learn more about those characters. I can better yeah. understand them. But in you know a lot of these articles and things that you click on on the internet, it's um yeah it's just not a lot of substance. You don't get the full story. A lot of times you may not get the correct story, and that that to me is scary. It's terrifying, yeah. and it's sort of choose your own adventure in terms of what no we're all watching anyway, you know, choose your own truth. <laughs> it's it's a very strange moment in in time that feels like we haven't we haven't quite figured out how we're how we're gonna function with the technology we're existing mm-hmm. living with. Yeah, and ho- hopefully that's something that evolves and we figure it out and it just doesn't spell our doom. But uh, Yeah, if not, we're all dead, and so <laughs> I guess there's that too. <laughs> yeah, you know, humans are resilient, so hopefully like the stories that you're telling and things like that will give us enough to reflect and say, okay, we need to eh, we need to go a little here. Um, but, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but that's why it's refreshing that with sharing these things with your son, with, with my niece and nephew, and this younger generation – I think is important. And that's what I like about this podcast format. We can get a little deeper. We can talk about these oh, yeah. things. And, uh, what an incredible resurgence of, of basically radio. It's yeah, amazing. Absolutely. A few more questions for you. Um, so after, so you did the, the career in journalism, uh, you, you took that, um, you jumped back in the film school, which was uh, which was a risk. I mean, that was a little later, but at a pretty good age. And mm-hmm. that was one of the stories Scott had told me. And I don't know what, what brought it up. Maybe I was talking about some different ideas. And as I'm getting older, thinking, like, is there still a chance? And mm-hmm. he had uh, and he, and he had said, oh, yeah, you know, look at my, my friend Phil Johnston and what he has done and this and that. And I thought, mm-hmm. oh, okay, cool. You know, at some point, he'd be a great podcast guest. So, yeah. so you went to New York and, um, you know, you had, uh, some great mentors there and then afterwards, uh, you created, so you created your short films. Was this before film school or after film school? I, I don't have the timeline down. Um, I mean, in film school, I made dozens and dozens of, of short films and worked on, you know, work, I mean, uh, 
I'm sure over a hundred in the in the years I was mm-hmm. there. We work on each other's stuff and are shooting constantly. So um, whether direct writing and directing, and I was a DP on a lot of them and and produced a bunch and stuff. Mm-hmm. So was just constantly making work while while in school. Um, so. I think all of the short films I made were at Columbia and then immediately after Columbia to make to make money I made a handful of um like industrial videos and public service announcements mm-hmm. yeah. for uh, uh, and stuff like that but all the short films were at Columbia. Great, great. And with that I guess a, the a long way to get to here I was rambling a bit but as far as a short film being a calling card, I guess this is advice to young filmmakers. Um, you feel, and I guess it, it's whatever realm you want to get into, whether directing or producing, uh, mm-hmm. I guess what's the best advice you have for a young filmmaker uh, who may want to break into Hollywood? Um, I think, I think young or old, I think the idea of if you're a writer to write a script that is really personal and um, you know, I'm, I'm staffing a, a show right now that will be on Netflix eventually. And I'm reading a bunch of stuff and I'm more likely to respond to something that is, that feels like it's really coming from the voice of someone that is uh, being honest and truthful on the page. And I, I, you know, sometimes it's great to read something that's just straight up hilarious and the jokes are funny and crisp, but I, I would look for something that's just honest and, Mm -hmm. and raw and vulnerable because I think that takes more guts than just writing jokes. Um, so that's, that's one thing. And then as far as making stuff goes, it's so accessible now. I mean, you know, Soderbergh has made a handful of things on an iPhone yeah, and yeah. there's no reason. I mean, my daughter is 10 and is edits on iMovie and is pretty fluent in that software. And, um, it's just, it's easy. So, um, you know, I, I would say just make stuff. And, uh, if you want to get into this medium, probably try to make something that's narrative, not just a funny TikTok video, yeah, although yeah. that's, something too um, yeah, yeah, yeah. but you know a, a, a five minute short or a two minute short just that shows I know how to move the camera and I know how story works and I can work with actors a little bit and you know a short film is really basically a joke it's a what even if it's a drama it's still a setup and a payoff and mm-hmm. if it's yeah. five minutes there's not much more time to do anything other than that so I think I made the mistake in film school making a movie that was like 22 minutes long, and <laughs> I I, um, I was I wanted to show what I could do, so I kind of incorporated a bunch of different genres, and I had explosions, and I had a <laughs> oh, wow. uh, sort of a helicopter shot in, wow. you know, before there were drones, and, yeah, yeah, um, all kinds of stuff like that. With and the movie did well for me, however. You know, if you're looking to get programmed in festivals, sh- shorter yep. is usually better. Absolutely. Um, and if you can make a poppy five-minute film or an you know eight-minute film, that's going to be better, just generally speaking, than and and from a purely you know 
sort of mercenary practical standpoint than than a than a super long film which even you know again i feel like that that movie i made my thesis film was a good calling card but it was still too long yeah i made so, the same mistake when i think mine was about 22 minutes as well and it was a great experience it really solidified that i could direct but yeah. but yeah it's just hard to program so I, I mean my thought is under 10 minutes is is a pretty mm -hmm. good rule of thumb yeah um but yeah, the advice would just be go go make it, make stuff, constantly be making stuff. Um, you know, there's there's just no reason not to with whether it's iMovie or or Final Cut or whatever you use. It's it's all affordable and it's everyone has a phone pretty much at this point. So yeah, kind of there are no more excuses, which has led to a great democratization of of the medium and it's also led to a lot more crap being produced uh -huh, <laughs> but, yeah yeah um but that's that's okay that's mm -hmm. uh, you take the good with the bad yeah definitely a couple more questions um you know one of the mistakes that, that i've made in the past and that i think a lot of young filmmakers do as far as um rewriting so mm -hmm. a lot of times it's a first draft and let's go film it because, and it's great to make things and it's great to collaborate, but, mm -hmm. but so often I, I think many, many films are, uh, independent films are, are DOA because mm -hmm. the script is not there. And I've made that mistake. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. um, but you, you had an interesting philosophy on, on rewriting that I, I picked up on the internet. Um, talk about that a little bit. I mean, the idea that, that, writing is rewriting basically mm -hmm. um and i'm certainly not the first person to say that but it's it's it is a painful but needed part of the process um where and and i would give i would give yourself time to finish something and then set it aside for a minute so you can look at it objectively then return to the work and be able to go oh that's that that character arc is no good or that this scene is totally unnecessary and like that. And then um, additionally, I think it's important to get your friends and collaborators to read and be honest and sort of brutal with, with you in a nice way so mm -hmm. that you're really beating the script up and, yeah. and you know, you're, you're pushing on it as hard as you can and you're, you're not letting any, you know, any stone go unturned, basically, because if you, um, you know, you have a great camera move and and some cool effects and, you know, a, an interesting performance, if the script is crap, it's not going to, it's not going to make any difference, you know. Yeah. So um, the rigor really needs to come um, before you start shooting. And, yeah, read it out loud with your friends. Just do a table read with, with non-actors it doesn't matter hearing it out loud is a huge help so mm -hmm. that's something i would always recommend um and yeah find find a couple people that you trust and who are trying to do the same thing who are going to be honest with you and not just say oh yeah that's great it's awesome it's much easier to say it's awesome than to sit down and spend two hours giving notes to somebody so um, you want yeah. those people. You need those people. Oh yeah, and that's where my friend Steve Meyer, the the animator, he's so great. When when I give, he gives so many notes, and it's just it's it's fantastic. It's just so so good because it's so much. It's painful when you get those notes sure. after you've spent the time and money 
to mm-hmm. and, and the hundreds of hours to craft that piece of cinema and then mm-hmm. like, oh yeah, this character, I wasn't really feeling this or why did he say that? And it's just like so yeah. much, so much easier to do that in the uh, in the early phases of script writing. So yeah, oh, excellent advice. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, The last question that that I have written is, uh, with me, sometimes I get uh, some ideas popping in my head just off times. When I'm riding my bicycle is a great time just to Uh shut down, and it's amazing how how many ideas pop into my head or finding clarity in an idea. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, hobbies can be that way. Sometimes just disconnecting just um, allows this flow of creativity. What is that for you? What do you, what do you do to get away that may in fact, uh, you know, just really energize your creativity? I mean, similarly, like um, running, I I often will get ideas while running Mm -hmm. and I can brainstorm with myself that way um, or going for a walk. Um, Really it can come from anywhere. Um, you know, David Lynch has this thing he says about ideas just being fish in in the in in the in the sea, and that you know you just have to know how to catch them, kind of mm-hmm. that they're out there, just sort of floating around, swimming around. And I kind of think that's true. You you need to pay attention to even dumb ideas and get used to writing them down. Um, I used to carry around a little notebook with me all the time, and now I mostly do it in notes on my iPhone. Mm -hmm. But, like, dumb ideas, dumb pieces of dialogue, a name, a title, um, just ideas that might float through your head that you might just think of as daydreaming but might actually be this really fertile idea. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think... I think you can't ignore those. You have to, it's, it's like a muscle. You have to train yourself to, um, to learn to pay attention to those things and, and really treat it as, you know, almost as an anthropologist or a journalist or something where you're going to examine this thing rather than just letting it float by because everyone has ideas, I think. And, and it's how you cultivate them that, that makes a difference between people who just have ideas and people who actually take them and, and craft them into something meaningful. Um, and, you know, it's it's great to, uh, it would be awesome to go away to a cabin in the woods and do some <laughs> some amazing uh-huh. um, thing. But this, the artist Chuck Close has this quote, um, I mean, paraphrasing, but it's something like, inspiration is for amateurs the rest of us just show up and do the work oh that's a good one i i really like that because it means it is work and it's not this sort of fanciful life of a of an artist where you're just floating in space and doing this wonderful work it's it's hard and it means putting your nose down and doing it and that's the case with anyone who makes anything you know that it's it requires hard work and you you need to just show up and do the work. So that's kind of how I approach it, which is it's like pretty midwestern uh, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> approach, you know, sort of work a day approach to it. But I find that that's helpful. Incredible advice. Um, mm-hmm. Well, that's all I have. Is um, anything you want to add? Oh, I don't think so. I mean, I think you're, you know, if it's if it's about people. Finding finding the time to to make work that's always a challenge. But um, you know, it's 
to some extent about sacrifice. I think if if you really love love film or writing or directing, I think you you just have to make it a part of your life. Like it's I define myself as much by my career as anything, which is could be considered unhealthy, but it's actually just what I want to do. It's mm-hmm. what I love, and so um, if you love it, find a way to to do it. I think. Well, Phil, this has been an absolute treat. I really appreciate you taking out the time to uh, chat with me. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Well, great. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, yeah, this is this was a lot of fun. I think uh, there's a lot of great, um, you know, the talking points in there. So, yeah, I think uh, people will enjoy it. So, uh, cool. yeah, I'll have it out. I'll let you know. It'll be a few weeks. I've got a little bit of a backlog. Um but uh, yeah, I'll let you know when it comes out. Are are you yeah. on social media? I'm not. I'm not that's at all. a that's a good thing. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, I'll send you a text or whatnot, and and let you know. And if um and if there's any other colleagues or anybody else that if the experience you know you find is good and you like the end product, I, I mean, I'm always looking to expand, and uh, I find that you know the networking approach and those connections. It's, yeah, totally. To, to me, this is all about connections. Connections to the work. Um, of course, was was one that really interested me in this conversation. Of course, the connection with Scott. So uh, yeah, to to me, life is all about the uh, the connections. So um, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'll I'll um, I'll I'll think who else might be good um, to talk to. I know a handful of people I think would be interesting. Well, I appreciate it. Yeah, th- thanks again, and uh, yeah, I'll let you know, and uh, I'll have to. Uh, have to take Scott out to lunch for uh, for connecting us. Really, <laughs> you know, he's such a good dude. Oh, he is. He's the best. One of my favorite people. All right, Phil. Well, uh, thanks again, and uh, enjoy the rest of your day. All right. Thanks, Ken. All right, Talk to you. Bye.